Hi there, I'm Rebecca Cahal. And I'm Boyan Fierst. You're listening to Rural Roots. A Harris Center podcast that asks, what is rural in the 21st century? So, Boyan, what do we have in store for this episode? Ah, this is the one where we go on a trip to Alberta, BC, Newfoundland and Labrador, Scotland, and Denmark. We are total globetrotters today. Uh, And we're actually going to be talking about rural tourism, so it makes a lot of sense. Yes, and we are going to be talking about Star Trek. Uh, Okay, I don't have a whole lot to contribute on that one. (laughs) I promise it's going to be a great story. All right, I'll take your word for it. (laughs) Good. So we are going to hear from Mark Stoddard, a sociologist here at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities at Memorial University of Newfoundland. We're also going to hear from Jane Severs. She's the executive director of the Association of Heritage Industries here in this province and also a member of the board of directors of the Colony of Avalon Foundation in Fairland. And then we are going to hop over to Southern Ontario and hear from Heather Mayer, a researcher at University of Waterloo. Right, and she was our guide to the whole Rural Curling Clubs episode uh, adventure that we had last season, right? That's right. And But she's also interested in rural tourism, so we are going to hear from her talking about something completely different cool. today. And our last guest is going to be Karin Larsen, from the island of Bornholm in Denmark. Great. So where do we start? (laughs) Why don't we start close to home with Jane Severs? Tell us about her. Okay. Well, we're not going to have to get into our magic airplane for that. That's just down the road. It's just down the road. Jane is one of those people who uh, is super involved in her community and really interested in the place where she lives. She's the president of the Association of Heritage Industries in this province, and she's also a member of the board of directors for the Colony of Avalon Foundation in Fairyland, which is part of the beautiful Irish Loop, one of the major tourism areas of this province. Uh, it's where you gotta go if you wanna see puffins, whale watching central, and it's, it's a region where there's this sort of Irish uh, laid back, sort of pastoral cool vibe um close to st john's and most tourists will make it part of their uh part of their trip right on any on sort ocean. of any sort of trip here that's got to be one of your destinations so but i'm going to let jane explain the historical significance of the site so the colony it's in in fairyland which is about an hour south of, of st john's um and its mission is to protect preserve and present um the remains of uh George Calvert's colony of Avalon, which he founded in 1621. And um, that site has been continuously occupied except for one year when it was obliterated by the Dutch, um, uh, right up to the present day. And it's now recognized as one of the most, uh, the the best preserved um, uh, early English colonial sites in North America. Wow, that's a pretty amazing piece of history to have in your backyard. It is, and uh, one of the really cool things about it is it was just always sort of there, um, and it does play a huge part in the local identity. I think for a place like the Colony of Avalon, there's a real sense of community pride that you know you have a something that researchers, you know, from all over the world recognize as as this archaeological gem. I mean, it's it's there's been more than two million artifacts recovered. It's completely changed the way that. Um, scholars now understand the early history of settlement in this province and you know I think that that when you talk to people that changes the way that they 
they think about, you know, it's, it's a special place. Um, and um, I think that one of the things at the colony is that they're, the employees, I mean, they have employees that have worked there for 27 years. That's like since the first day the doors opened. Yes. And I think that means something to, be, to, to, have been, to have started and helped build a site right from the very beginning. It really creates a sense of pride and of uh, agency, being able to actually do something. That actually sounds really interesting. I, I've never been. What? I know. You have got to be kidding me. No, I because you know I we organize all these regional workshops at um, the Harris Center, and I always go, and I've yeah. been to Irish Loop many times. Yeah. But I'm the guy who has to make sure that everything is going to be there for the participants. So I never get to go on the tours. I never right. get to do any of that stuff. I was actually, I spent some time there. Uh, granted, I <laughs> it was the day I came down with horrible stomach flu. <laughs> but I was out there for a shoot because the colony was one of the winners of Memorial University's President's Award for Public Engagement Partnerships. Oh. Yeah, so I was out there doing interviews and shooting some footage. And uh, so there is, I can give you a bit more background <laughs> on what the experience actually is, because I don't think Jane's actually going to go there. No, sure. Um, so there is a beautiful interpretation site with many of those artifacts that, that Jane mentioned already. So much has been brought out of the ground there. Uh, there are active archaeological sites. When I was there, Dr. Barry Galton from a Memorial University's archaeology department was there with a bunch of students um, from Canada, from around the world, who were all there because of this awesome site. Um, from a tourist poten- uh, p- perspective, there are there's a working hearth. Um, wood-fired huge hearth and and they actually had a really cool I can't remember the name of it but they actually had a really cool initiative this year where every week or every couple of weeks they were um, making old recipes from the time historic recipes and 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 actually challenging modern cooks to replicate those old recipes in their own kitchens and share the results so they're doing really cool stuff to bring it to life as well. And then there's just the fact that there's a, an amazing hike and, and, and a lighthouse out at the end of the, uh, of the space as well. So it's a really great place to go. And it's also, I would imagine with all of that, it's like a huge economic driver. Oh, yeah, those. absolutely. Um, so as you can imagine, it's really important to the small communities in the area. Um, they're all struggling with many of the usual issues that we see in so many rural communities. There, there's an older demographic situation, population decline, youth out-migration. Um, let's get Jane to describe the impact. Sure. Essentially, it's a travel generator. So say for the colony of Avalon, they... Um, attract between 16 and 20,000 visitors a year. So when those visitors come into a community, yeah, they're visiting the colony, but they're also visiting the community museum. You know, they're visiting lighthouse picnics. Um, they're, you know, they're going down the road to Renews and Fermuse and all the other communities. Um, they're eating. They're, you know, some of them are staying overnight. So it just, it, it, it creates a pull. And then once people are there, they kind of, they, they fan out and do other things. So, given how much focus we are putting on tourism these days, that kind of a site probably has pretty good future. Yeah, and I think people are feeling pretty optimistic in the community and, and with the colony. But that's not to say that there aren't issues and challenges that they have to deal with, um, many of which actually have to do with the population decline 
uh, and the impact of that. Hmm, what do you mean? This is what's happening right now. What's happening is that government is saying, we want to extend the season. Um, we know that pe- that people are now, they're coming in the sho- what used to be the shoulder season, so May, June, and right up until end of October now is pretty busy for a lot of places. Um, and when they get to these communities, the sites are closed. And so what we're hearing from Department of Tourism is, everybody, keep your sites open. And everyone's like, we want to. We want to because we know we can generate revenue. You know, that's, we know we can create business opportunities for our communities. But we don't have the capacity to keep the site open. Mm-hmm. Like, if, like, if you don't have staff, you don't have staff. Hmm. So where does the staff usually come from? Well, as Jane said, there are uh, local staff who've been working there for a very long time and who are fully committed and, and for whom this is, you know, their primary employment. That said, um, for most of the heritage organizations and tourism sites in rural parts of this province, pretty much everything outside of St. John's, they are still really relying on summer students to fill the gap. Uh, but the rules have changed recently, so there's less funding for those students, and they're only allowed to be hired for shorter periods of time. The other thing is that there's no funding, no specific funding programs to hire uh, groups like seniors who are interested in doing the work and who are in the communities. There, there's just no way to actually get them paid, which is a problem. Yeah, I, I mean, what can these communities do? What, how are they coping with that? Well, exactly the way that the government would prefer they didn't in most cases. <laughs> I think people are, are having to rely more on volunteers, which, which, which is great. But it also, um, it's, it's different having someone on a volunteer capacity than it is in a paid employment capacity. Um, you know, there's different expectations. There's, you know, different demands you can place on them. Um, you know, if you... There's different training that people are willing and not willing to to uh, to invest in that kind of thing, um, and I think that the biggest way that a lot of sites have responded is they've essentially shortened their operating season. So, as the the funding and the availability of students declines, people are just shortening their seasons to match the the funding, which you know is <laughs> it's not a great it, well it's a terrible thing. That is a terrible thing. I mean, especially when you think about how many of these communities are relying now on tourism to keep a whole bunch of things going. Yeah, the ramifications extend well beyond just the specific site. Hmm. Jane really stressed that all of us, and especially governments, have to understand that tourism on its own is not necessarily what communities care about. They do often see tourism as a way to generate revenue and social capital, but really it's about... It's about creating a community where people want to live. Hmm. The big thing is that tourism doesn't necessarily generate community capital mm. because tourism may not be what your community cares about. Right. So the question is, how do you serve tourists, but how do you also meet your mission so that your community supports you in all the ways you need them of course. to support? And so it's, it's the balancing act yeah. that, that you don't, you know, too far on the tourism side and you lose that that support from your community so if it's a balancing act how would you develop tourism in a community so that it does meet community needs rather than just tourist needs well it's hard 
but Jane did uh, talk about an approach that in her mind would put community first and would, would help to balance all of those sort of conflicting needs, desires, wants, etc. Hmm. With tourism, your market is our tourists. And here in this province, um, uh, the core market, which uh, the provincial government is pushing people to serve, are non-resident mm-hmm. visitors, which tend to be older, white-collar, well-educated, you know, money to spend on, on, on tourism and products and services. Um, so what you're doing is you're, constant, you're, you're creating products and services to serve a market. And so you're, you're constantly tweaking it to suit their needs. Right. And their needs are very often not the same needs as the people who live there. Mm. So communities first is based on the idea that, okay, visitors are looking for authentic experiences. And so what's authentic? Well, authentic is when it's of and by the community and for the community. So instead of going market first, you go community first. Mm-hmm. And, and by doing that, you, in effect, serve the needs of the market who are looking for authenticity. All right. Given what I do for a living, that community-first approach definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. So does she have some good examples? Yeah, she has one really strong one right here in the province again on the Bonavista Peninsula. Oh, of course. Bonavista has really, uh, their, their whole approach has been community first. Right. So I think that they've had the foresight of both the Townscape Foundation and um, uh, Bonavista Living and Bonavista Creative. They've worked together and they've, they've had the foresight to see that that is the potential and that they've worked really hard to make sure that, they're, that, that their missions are community first. You know, I've been to Bonavista many times, actually, mm-hmm. and I'm always amazed how beautiful and well done that whole center of town is. Mm-hmm. And I can totally see how it would work for the community. I do wonder if it comes with the negatives as well. Yeah, it can. Um, and Jane talked about that, too. There's the whole issue of gentrification, is that, you know, once a place becomes a tourism area, then people start to see it as attractive. They purchase properties. You know, it changes the demographic of a community. It also, it, it may affect property values. So, um, you know, all those kind of things. Yeah, I can see that. I mean, I, I can think of examples in Croatia, where I'm from, mm-hmm. um, here in the province, mm-hmm. where you can see that kind of thing. You can get into so. situations where the people who have always lived there can no longer access the places that should belong to them. Real estate prices go crazy. Um, the focus in terms of, you know, what we care about, it can change pretty quickly mm-hmm. uh, when money comes in. That comment about changing demographic yeah. was interesting. Yeah, um, and, and that brings a whole other set of problems as well. Uh, you get different people coming in and that really does affect the fabric of a, of a community. Jane had some pretty interesting insight on that as well, actually. I live in in rural Newfoundland. Um, and so just I think that my experience is that when, when people come in from the outside, they move in because they're attracted to the place. They like the feel of the community and the sense of small townness. But over time, as they get more comfortable in the community, they tend to think, well, you know, in Toronto, we do it this way. And why aren't you doing it this way? And that, that there's a real kind of sense of, um, uh, they they move there because they like the place, but then they want to change it, and the locals are like, 
Oh, I'm so glad she brought that up. Uh, it's something I heard a lot about when I was doing my own graduate research on Change Islands, Fog Island, and in Croatia. Right. But more importantly, our next guest from the other side of the Atlantic has things to say about that. Okay, so who's this? So Karen Larson is a senior researcher at the Center for Regional and Tourism Research on the island of Bornholm, which is a small Danish island in the Baltic Sea. And uh, maybe I'll let Karen explain to you what Bornholm looks like. Bornholm is um, it's quite a distinct island from the rest of Denmark. Denmark is a very small place. Uh, it's uh, almost an archipelago of uh, a number of islands. But we don't, uh, most of those islands are connected by bridges. So Bornholm is sort of an exception because it's, uh, it takes, um, you can take a night ferry, it takes seven hours to get there, or you can drive through Sweden and then take a ferry that takes an hour and a half. And just after the Second World War, uh, the rest of Denmark was um, liberated by the Allies, but um, Bornholm was occupied by the Russians for an extra nine months. And um, the fact that the Allies didn't come to Bornholm and, and um, liberate us, them, um, actually, I think, is, is still hurts Bornholmians. So they're not, uh, they feel, of course, they're Danish, but sometimes they feel that they're not quite as Danish as the rest of the islands. So it is an island that is um, different from the other islands in Denmark. We are almost 40,000 inhabitants. And we um, display many of the same char- characteristics as other rural areas, meaning that uh, most young people move away from the island. Uh, those who stay on the island um, age, of course they do, but <laughs> the population as such is getting older. Uh, we have um, higher uh, unemployment rates than the rest of the country and slower growth rates when it's going good or going well. There is some access to education, but uh, it's also limited. And then we have a very large uh, tourist base. So we have a lot of tourists who come every summer, uh, people who come back year after year from the rest of Denmark, but also from Germany and Sweden and Poland. We have cruise tourists, cruise tourists who want to see the whole Baltic Ocean and who stop by for a day perhaps uh, on Bornholm. And then we have a very large summer house community. So there are a lot of things that are sounding really familiar in the context of Atlantic Canada as well. Oh, and you know what? It's uh, just about to get a heck of a lot more familiar. Listen to this. The huge impact of the collapse of the cod um, populations. Uh, You see it in the Baltic Sea. Uh, A few years later, I visited Iceland and the Ferries Island. They talked about the same complete downturn of uh, local economy due to the collapse of... Uh, the cod population, and then when I visited uh, Newfoundland the first time, it was the same thing being said. So you can you can understand this complete changing of the North Atlantic and its economic base taking place right across from um, the most either eastern part of the Baltic Sea to uh, both the uh, western and eastern part of the Atlantic Ocean. And of course, all of these societies have had to redefine themselves. Many of them have turned to tourism, and many of them are, are trying to sell themselves as recreational paradises, um, selling their natural resources. And of course, this is uh, in some of the places that have been successful in doing this, have brought in a lot of different types of tourists uh, who are there for shorter or longer uh, periods. So, 
I have to say, I immensely enjoyed talking to Karin. She's one of those, she's a researcher, but she's also the Islander. She's from there, she lives there, and brings both perspectives and mixes them really nicely, which was really nice. I met her uh, at the International Small Islands uh, Studies Conference uh, on the island of Terschelling in uh, Netherlands uh, earlier this year and we talked in a little coffee shop uh, at the Marine Institute there um, so that's what you're hearing Mm. in the background we talked a lot actually about seasonal residents and newcomers to these places so it sounds like some of the same issues that Jane described are also relevant and taking place in the Danish context as well yeah and what was especially interesting, maybe not so much on the Irish Loop portion of the province, but when I think about places like Fog Island, Change Islands, um, Karin and her team eventually identified several groups of new residents and they categorized them based on the level of engagement and mm. involvement with the community. So, for example, the first group they identified, they called entrepreneurs. And um, they often have a very specific investment interest in the communities they choose for their seasonal residence. I think you are going to like it. These are people that come in and they're entrepreneurs themselves or they're really interested in specialty foods and they invest in it just for fun. And uh, they like these foodie communities and they want uh, high-end food products and they're willing to, to invest in it just Uh, because they have the money, they have the funds, but also for the fun of sort of feeling that, hey, I'm a part of something unique, I'm a part of something special, and that's what they do. So that's one type. That's so interesting, the connections between food, tourism, and then the engagement with local communities. And sometimes people do a really good job of that. And then other times it just kind of seems like, uh, okay, here's a business that has just sort of been transported from an urban place and has very little relevance to what's going on around it. And, And then you also often find that the local people aren't even eating it. Exactly. And uh, what, was, what was really interesting, she provided a couple examples here that uh, I didn't include in these clips, but one was around a specialty butcher right? Um, who really wanted to kind of start providing some of the specialty cuts and specialty uh, cured meats to the tourists who were coming. Right. Uh, but on his own, he would never be able to actually sustain that business. Because of the money. People exactly. in these regions don't have a ton of money. And because of these entrepreneurs, he was able to actually open this specialty butcher shop. Right. right? Because yeah. it was they had fun investing in something like that. Right. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Um, and I think there are sort of pros and cons to that kind of mm-hmm. investment as well. Uh, what other types of seasonal residents uh, were, were, was she encountering in, in Denmark? Oh, you know these guys. This was a group of summer house owners who had summer houses in a harbor that had been completely uh, filled up with sand. The harbor wasn't functioning anymore. Um, And they got involved figuring out how to drag the sand out of this harbor. Um, And they felt that it was actually a very important aspect for them that their summer house was next to an old pier and to the old maritime uh, environment that used to be there when there wasn't sand uh, in the harbor. And we've called these the, the Heritage Revitalization Group because they, it's, it depends on cultural heritage, but they also want something new there, something to develop in their local areas. Right, that makes sense. Uh, newcomers and seasonal residents 
often do seem to be drivers behind some of these big heritage restoration projects. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's in many ways normal. Uh, I'm thinking of some of the islands in Croatia or even the area, uh, rural area around the town I grew up in in Croatia, where people come from outside and they see the architecture, the existing structures with completely new eyes and place a different set of values on it than people who take them for granted. Yeah, and actually something that I've noticed, uh, it does seem that when that happens in a community, and this is totally just me noticing stuff, we have absolutely no research to back (laughs) this up. Maybe it's out there. (laughs) But you actually sometimes do see that then local people will get interested as well. Yeah, that's and, exactly. and they'll share their knowledge, and, 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 and there's a sense of valuing of, of local knowledge, which is a really positive thing for a community. When you have people from the outside coming in and not just saying, okay, I want this to look like a Newfoundland postcard, but saying, okay, I want this to look like a Newfoundland postcard, but I want to do it while working with people who have this expertise and this knowledge and this history. There's something really great about that. That's exactly what happened on Change Islands, actually. There was a couple who came there and really fell in love with the traditional stages and stores and started restoring some of them. And people looked at them and said, you know, that's actually really pretty. We always see them as these functional fisheries industry-related places. Uh, And then you suddenly have had a whole bunch of people on the island just restoring their working premises. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah. What are the other types? Are there more? This is neat. I oh, like this. of course there's more. So meet the idealists. The third group we've called the idealists. And these are um, people who um, somehow support either through their personal interests or their networks, but also monetary uh, through uh, societal transitions towards sustainable energy or towards organic farming. And so they have interest in... Um, transitioning society in certain directions towards more sustainability um, and they're quite willing to engage themselves in that even though they don't live on the islands where this is happening they want the islands to develop in this direction so they support this uh, some of them uh, have bought shares in organic farming organization buys up farming land and turns it into organic farms Um, but also some are just uh, getting involved in the local there's an energy academy, they call it, that is transitioning the whole island towards um, solar and wind uh, sustainable energy forms. And yeah, then they know somebody at a university who has some research and they bring them onto the island and say, hey, you should meet each other. Those types of, you know, using your, your networks and your uh, other types of resources that they bring in. I'll admit, that always gets my hackles up a bit, Boyan. <laughs> you knew it was going to. I knew it was going to. <laughs> that's a bit of that I know better than you sort of perspective coming into a rural community. And, and I mean, you know, the shades of, oh, wouldn't it be nice to live the simple lifestyle of, of being a farmer when in reality it's a difficult, complicated, energy and intelligence intense endeavor. And, and this sort of romanticization, that, that gets me a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> and we know lots of those. We do, yeah. yeah. Uh, you know what? Actually, we know the next group, too. The uh, global leisure community. This is people who um, have some sort of uh, leisure time interest. Uh, could be uh, flying a kite uh, or surfing, or uh, maybe you're an Ingmar Bergman film buff. 
and uh, you get involved in projects that bring activities to the island often in the form of events. So film festivals, surfing uh, communities throughout the summer, kite festivals, bringing in people from Japan, bringing in film buffs from uh, all over Europe. Um, and, um, and this ties into a, a global community that has these same leisure interests almost on a global scale that they sort of make sure touches down in their local area and perhaps uh, helps that local area to develop. And we also know the next group. That's probably your most common group of seasonal residents, but in some ways they might be the most important ones. And then the final group, we call them the quietly loyal, because what they are are these very frugal summer house owners who have very small cottages and um, who come back to this place year after year. And you, of course you notice them uh, locally, but they don't actually involve themselves in the communities, but they're extremely loyal to whatever is going on. So if there is an event, they will be sh- there for sure. If there is a new local food, they will go and invest in it or buy it. And so they support local community development. Uh, they're quite loyal. They will come back time and again and always try something new. Oh, that's really neat. Um, those categories make a lot of sense. Uh, and I think that those types of behaviors are, are would be really... Um, would be really recognized by a lot of rural communities that are working to develop tourism. But I also think they'd be really familiar in some of those places, rural places, or previously rural places. I'm thinking of the Muskokas in Ontario, for example, where this has been, um, the process has been unfolding for a long time, and it's a little bit more uh, sort of matured now as well. And I think even if you look at the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, places like Trinity, are kind of moving in that direction. And you can kind of see a lot of these groups, at least in the areas that I worked in, and I can kind of recognize some of those behaviors. And, you know, I, I, I think this is really kind of interesting, and I think we could come up with a few more categories if we wanted to. But I also think that what's really interesting is that they also bring a whole bunch of issues that need to be negotiated. Like what? A lot of it has to do with gentrification, imposition of very different set of values, and really skyrocketing mm-hmm. property prices that eventually push local people out. And uh, maybe I'll actually let Karin explain because she had some really good examples. We have to be a little bit critical of this because um, what we also saw in, in some of this is that in some of the uh, places where very affluent people come in, we could see almost what I would call places turning into the playgrounds for the rich. Um, so they, they come in and they have substantial resources, much more than the local population has. They buy up houses and they uh, change the place. Um, and so it can be quite difficult for people who live there to even have affordable housing. Um, and I can see that this is happening on the Swedish island of Gotland, where they don't, uh, ev- anyone is allowed to buy a house. So even if it's a full-time house, when it's uh, being sold, someone can come in and, and buy it up and turn it into a summer house. In Denmark, we um, it's at the municipal level, if you want to do it, so a municipality can decide that all full-time housing or year-round housing must stay year-round house housing, so you can't buy it if you're not going to live there. So this is one of the governancing um, acts that you can actually do locally, That's and that's quite important to keep. Um, the island that I'm on, Bornholm, has, um, it has just been released now so that anyone can buy 
a house which has been a full-time residency and turned into a summer house, except in seven cities where they want to, I call them cities, towns, small towns, um, where they want to keep it alive year-round. So they've designated seven places as this is where we're going to have seven year-round live communities. And outside these places, you can buy even a full-time residence and turn it into a summer house. And I think this is a very important uh, part of of protecting the island, of protecting um, living societies, of making sure that you know the rich cannot just come in and buy up a house and uh, uh, and really turn it into a palace, and then all of a sudden all the houses on that street are becoming more and more expensive, and normal people can't afford them. I think that's that's an important aspect to to keep be aware of. So I don't want to be completely hard on people with high incomes or people who are coming from urban places and want to explore these beautiful rural landscapes and and these rural cultures too so (laughs) i'm gonna take off some of that uh (laughs) contrarian angle that just creeps into me and into you as well boy Mm -hmm. and uh you know i'm gonna assume that there are people who value the places where they're moving into and who want to be better connected and and actually become part of those communities. So in Karen's experience, are there ways for that to, to happen? Oh, absolutely. And of course, you can't just paint everybody with the same brush. Yeah. Um, so what's really interesting on the island of Bornholm is that they have a whole bunch of programs. Um, we would probably, you know, in the prairies, they would be kind of like welcome wagons kind oh, of thing. Yes. Right. So they have a whole bunch of programs that allow people to kind of become a part of the community right and the the way that it works is that it's about welcoming newcomers but also finding ways for them to really embed themselves into the daily life of the mm-hmm. community and she said there is one sure way to know that you are not a stranger anymore you know that you're welcome as a newcomer when you become a part of um, the people who already live there's narratives so if you've lived there for many years and you're going through the island, they say, oh, this is uh, Uncle Jacob, and he's been, you know, he's the son of blah, 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 and then he married uh, that, and then they had this, and she's away at this, and that you're part of an island narrative, even if you don't live there. And so when you come in as a newcomer, there's no story about you. You're just this blank canvas, and you hope they actually see you, but you don't know because maybe you're invisible for quite a period of time until you do something that they recognize as as valuable. So if you, I don't know, start up a swimming class for the kids that wouldn't otherwise be there, and the other parents recognize that, oh, this is is a worthy uh, thing that he's doing or she's doing, and then they start, oh, this is... um, whatever your name is, uh, he's, he's organizing the swimming class. Then you become a part of the narrative. And of course, there are you know, short-term narratives and long-term narratives, but the sort of idea of you can't start your own story. You have to wait to be invited into somebody else's story. I think that that's an extremely important part of becoming a part of a community. That's so interesting. And I actually, I think that extends, I think that's true in almost any situation where someone is moving from one place to another. Yeah, I think um, when you read things around immigration, for example, um, there is that. There's a couple of studies that are showing that it takes about ten years to become right. part of a place. Yeah, 
a creating a sense of belonging takes a long time and there's a lot of work to it. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are we supposed to do about this whole tourism thing? I think that question is actually a really good spot to bring the next voice uh, into this story. Mark Stoddard is a sociologist here at the Faculty of Social Sciences and Humanities, and he's been studying tourism for quite some time, all over North America, uh, North Atlantic, I should say, and in the British Columbia as well. Uh, he has a pretty good and nuanced way on how he sees tourism. For me, I, I find what I find interesting about this stuff is there's kind of the, I'd say, you know, the kind of critical narrative that tourism kind of just museumifies rural communities, um, that it just turns them into caricatures of themselves, that it completely you know, kind of destroys the character of rural communities, kind of the pessimistic narrative. And I think there's the optimistic narrative that, you know, tourism is kind of a panacea. It's going to be, you know, after, in the wake of a resource economy collapse or decline it's the next big thing. It's the gold rush that, you know, will save the community. It's the lifeline. And I think um, holding too tight to either of those narratives isn't helpful and is probably ultimately going to lead to, well, you avoid it altogether and don't engage. Um, and then only the few entrepreneurs that do engage will will maybe see the benefits. Or if you think it is the panacea, well, then, you know, you might be in for a lot of disappointment when you realize that it's hard and it's a long game and it has challenges, right? So I think the truth of it is um, tourism isn't good or bad. Uh, It's how it's managed. And I think the more more you can approach it with collaboration, with an attention to governance, the more likely communities are to take advantage of the good and hopefully mitigate the bad. Interesting. So does he have some examples of situations where that's taken place? He sure does. I think locally, certainly, um, I'm, I'm always struck by the Bombay region uh, and the work of the kind of cooperating association and so on. I think that, that they do have a kind of a collaborative, a culture of collaboration and engagement that I think is benefiting them in terms of ensuring tourism is evolving to, to benefit host communities. Um, I'd also say actually Scotland uh, is another one. Uh, and I think partly that's, they have the benefit of, you know, one, having one of the first kind of mass tourism sort of economies in Europe, um, that it became a place to go really in the 19th century, right? And originally for the kind of upper classes to go hunting and fishing and all this stuff. Um, but they've been doing it a really long time. And I think in more recent years, um, they're, they're really, you know, I think they've got, you know, in, in the Scottish government, a minister of tourism, um, which I don't believe we have in Canada yet, as far as I know. Um, but they, they seem to be doing very well at, at um, working between government and the tourism sector, working across the levels of Scottish government, regional uh, actors and local community actors. So they're kind of doing the vertical scale really well, it seems like, um, the connectivity from the community to the national but they're also, I think, doing really well on the engagement between um, the government sector and the, the private sector operators. And I think um, a lot of tourism sectors around the rest of the North Atlantic um, would learn a lot, I think, from looking at the kind of the, where the Scottish model has been evolving to. Yeah, and I think and also what I heard was it wasn't always the case, right? There was there was a lot of tension, a lot of dissatisfaction with too much top-down government-driven stuff. But it seems like that's kind of been shifting as well. So it's more uh, more balanced that they're kind of having a bit more bottom-up in a sense, more community-driven initiatives that the government is now responding to. It seems like there's tremendous opportunity for regions to learn from each other. Yeah, I mean, I think we're starting to see some of that happening here in the province. 
interestingly, um, for that kind of multiple decentralized tourism uh, model, Mark says that we should actually in Canada look at British Columbia. Yeah. But he also says that even in Canadian context, British Columbian British Columbia example is um, quite new, and it's tied to the World Expo hmm. in 1986. My first trip there when I was 12 years old, family trip for Expo 86. Um, and But at that point, I think, you know, BC was still really at the fringe of most Canadians' uh, imaginary of the country that weren't from Western Canada. Um, and at the time, the dominant economies in BC were forestry and fisheries, right? Um, it's now right up there with any resource economy in the province. Uh, and also, you know, tourism is still pretty concentrated in Victoria, Vancouver, and the Whistler Corridor. But that province has also done a really good job of decentralizing tourism, of spreading it out to, to rural communities, um, the Okanagan Valley, the Kootenays, um, be particularly standout examples, but um, they've you know they've done they've done well, right? And and that's an issue that I think a lot of other regions are grappling with is getting people out of uh, the center, out of the metropole, uh, into more rural areas. How much do we love the Kootenays? <laughs> <laughs> so much. So that's really interesting because when you think about BC, you, you can name a whole handful of destinations that you'd like to visit, and that would have. Um, plenty of resource and capacity for you to go and take a vacation mm-hmm. and you know it's interesting um, one of the countries that mark used as an example as a place that's grappling with how to spread the benefits of tourism is actually iceland mm-hmm. which we tend to hold as an example of how we could be doing mm-hmm. things which uh, uh, is by all uh, accounts the tourism industry has just gone wild and you go there and there are tourists like crazy. Yes, except vast majority of them are in the Reykjavik region. Right. So what's Iceland now struggling with is to kind of get people out of that region. Right. When you think about um, the tourism ads in this province, uh, they really have been emphasizing the idea that the entire province is a destination. Yeah, and, and that's the model that Mark says Scotland understands and does uh, really well. Scotland, I think, does beautifully. As I think more as a sector, more and more, they're also realizing that it's not about, you know, the Highlands versus, you know, Argyle versus the North Coast. They're realizing it's Scotland as a destination versus the world. Your competition isn't the person on the next peninsula over or the next bay over or the B&B down the road. Uh, Their competition is us, essentially, or Ireland or, you know, etc. Hey, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, if you are putting in the effort to come to a place, uh, there's no odds to driving three or four hours and hitting up a ton of different destinations within a region. The real, uh, the real line you've got to cross is actually getting on that airplane to come to the place in the first place. So it makes a lot of sense. It does. Yeah. So when tourism works well, when these sort of regional partnerships and lack of centralization and, you know, good communication between locals and tourists, when that's actually happening, what are the benefits to the communities that become these hot tourism destinations? They're the obvious ones, right? Revenue, um, jobs. But Mark says there are benefits that are not strictly economic that we often overlook. 
it basically helps give um, kind of a rationale or legitimation to protect, um, you know, kind of the built heritage of the province, uh, to protect historic sites. Um, it also gives a structure that uh, gives people space to carry on, uh, you know, what kind of government speak would say is kind of intangible heritage, right? So storytelling, musical performance, theater, um, all that kind of stuff, craft, art, right? So it, it also helps provide a market for that um, and provide a, you know, kind of a, a structure of support for that, right? Uh, and then it maybe also gives a structure of support that, that uh, younger folks in rural communities can see that, hey, this stuff is valued, it's interesting uh, as part of our uh, the history of rural communities, right? Um, so that can contribute to a kind of a sense of collective pride, uh, collective identity that, um, that our community is kind of like, this place people want to come see, want to come visit, right? So there's this kind of, and when we think about retaining, you know, kind of youth in rural communities, that can be a really important thing, even if it's not about, you know, that's, that goes beyond just, okay, giving people like a summer job. It's like, oh, actually this community is a place that's of value that people are interested in from, from around the world, um, that see it as kind of culturally rich and interesting, ecologically rich and beautiful as well. I, I don't, don't want to forget the environmental side as well. And also that's another benefit that often comes up is um, tourism can kind of legitimate or give a bit of an impetus to protecting kind of, more, you know, natural areas, right? Uh, interacting with tourists can also help people develop kind of social capital a bit, right? As they kind of learn things and like get new ideas. A lot of what we do with tourism development should double up, right? And, and in tr increasingly, I think, you know, I think communities also recognize when you're building tourism infrastructure, it works best if it is also spaces or infrastructure that communities have an interest in using, right? Whether that's recreational infrastructure like hiking trails or, or multi-use trails, um, or whether that's, you know, uh, festivals, right? Music festivals, theater festivals, but stuff that can appeal to people uh, living there as well as visitors. Like if you can kind of have those win-wins, that means you're going to get more community buy-in to the project of tourism development. And that means, you know, the community sees more of the benefits, but also ultimately it also means visitors are going to have a better time um, in a community where people are kind of buying into tourism development as a project. So it seems like there's a bit of a recipe there. Build your tourism strategy to support authentic local identity and experience and, and, and to allow the people who are already living there to continue to do the things that they want to do. Make sure you're maximizing the benefits for those people who are living in the community, not just visitors. And be careful not to get carried away and expect too much, but also kind of go with it. Yeah, that is indeed the recipe, unless you are Vulcan, Oberta. As I was driving into town, the uh, Starship Enterprise was up in the air on the edge of the town, and I'm a huge Star Trek fan, so I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that's our friend Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo. She, uh, in our previous episode, was known as the curling researcher, but now she is the expert on Star Trek and tourism. She is an expert on tourism, and uh, she has actually done a significant amount of work, and I think we'll use portions of this interview in another episode about tourism, because one of the things she did was developed a tourism guidebook for the communities in southern Ontario, for example. Right. But the story I want to pull out of this interview, and I kind of apologize for severe distortion, it had to do something with the room we were recording it in in Guelph. She is going to tell us about this town of Vulcan and a strange example of how you can build a tourism strategy around something that is definitely not a part 
of a traditional Southern Alberta char. So <laughs> how does it all come down to the Starship Enterprise, Boyan? Uh, it's a strange story. So it's a small town. Vulcan is a small town, less than 2,000 people. And um, they were experiencing a significant economic downturn in the late 80s. So they had a meeting to figure out what to do next. And whoever was at that meeting um, decided that there was a draw. And the draw is the town name, Vulcan, which is actually named for the Roman god of fire. It has nothing to do with the Star Trek identity. But a few people around the table who were rightly concerned about the community's future noticed that tourists were driving down from Calgary and Edmonton, nearby kind of urban areas, to just simply have a picture taken beside the the Vulcan sign, which was unadorned, not remotely Star Trek related. So, you know, good idea, let's build on this. And it turns out that the the key players at that time were huge Star Trek fans. So they really kind of immediately jumped on the idea and thought it was a really, you know, a profound opportunity because Star Trek has that, we can talk about Star Trek forever, but it's got this kind of feel-good uh, inclusive, uh, you know, peacemaking sort of science will set us all free kind of agenda. So they kind of, they saw that they had something they could work from and they just kind of went with it. Yep, absolutely. And not only did they start branding the town with Star Trek signs, but you could also buy and wear uh, pointy Vulcan ears to look like Spock. <laughs> Are you all right? Yes, I believe no permanent damage was done. What happened? The occipital area of my head seems to have impacted with the arm of the chair. No, Mr. Spock, I meant what happened to us. Poor Spock. (laughs) (laughs) So how did this all play out? Well, it all kind of came to a head um, during... um, Star Trek convention. So these are large gatherings of people that are Star Trek fans who um, dress up as in the characters. And these conventions were huge in Calgary and Edmonton. So people in Vulcan decided to have a convention in their own town too. And there was a group in town behind the convention and they decided that they wanted to include the whole town in the process this group called Vast realized that they didn't want to just have an event that didn't include the town. So they matched up the, uh, the Vulcan, which was their Vulcan convention, with the local rodeo. So they wanted to have a broad community event all at once. This is one of their first attempts at this. And unfortunately, uh, or fortunately, I guess, some characters, some tourists who came down to Vulcan were dressed in Klingon costumes and, were, and, and became Klingons. They came down into the town, committed to this role, and the vast organization brought them right into the experience of the event. So the the Klingons and locals who dressed as Klingons were invited to host a community dinner, there was a parade, there was a dance, and so these, these characters, these tourists, were being Klingons and other Star Trek characters in this small town. At the same time, there was a rodeo 
and a community event that was celebrating other aspects of life in Vulcan, like the heritage of cattle and, you know, Alberta life as we know it. And so there was a clash between the Klingons and what I, and the cowboys, and there was a, and there were fights. So we have Klingons versus cowboys, and so the Klingons would not break character, and they were aggressive. They're not, they're not warm. They weren't nasty, but they were in character, and they're kind of an aggressive species. And the cowboys were annoyed and felt totally alienated from the experience. And so there were there were actual fistfights during uh, the dance, which came at the end of this very first event. And so what you have there are uh, uh, an, an inability to negotiate identity, a Klingon identity, which is the tourist identity, and the cowboy identity, which is part and parcel with the local identity and so that's that was the example I tried to give before about when you don't see yourself in the way the town is being branded it can be it can be very difficult <laughs> that's got to be the most tangible metaphorical <laughs> example of the challenges of this kind of endeavor that I can imagine also wasn't there a movie about that wasn't there a movie called cowboys versus aliens <laughs> I think there was. <laughs> <laughs> or something. Or something like that, a- yes. Anyways, it's, it's, I mean, I see how there could be trouble. And I do need to know what happened next. It all ends, well, eventually. Now, lots of really good things have come from this. There have been a lot of investments in the town. There's a huge science uh, center now um, that's housed in the Tourist Bureau, which is also kind of doubles as a, as a science and technology center. There have been investments in the community. So it's an example of, of a community that's trying to kind of hold up two things. And, and to, to be fair, they have tried to... Like, if you look at their website, there's a lot more now about community well-being and other kind of non-Trek-related things. Not everything is branded, especially for the local people, as a Star Trek community. But it still has this tension. It still has this other directedness where it's looking out to tourists and defining itself as a tourism destination in a way that doesn't jive for a lot of people with the way the community's felt. So that's kind of in a... It's an extreme, I think, example. Interestingly, though, I have heard since, uh, I've been talking about Vulcan a lot lately, and I have heard that it's being held up by some as a great example of branding and community economic development and tourism. And so I kind of, I'm a little concerned about that because I know, at least initially when it got off the ground, there were some some pretty deep concerns, and I doubt that those have gone away. I think some people still feel like this whole thing is, is kind of ridiculous. And I'm a Star Trek fan, so... You know, I'm kind of torn about this. But as a researcher, you can dig into a case like this and say, like, there are negotiated identities and meanings about how this community feels. And it's just such a rich example of um, of tourism development that maybe has to have a bit more of a community development perspective. Wow. So there were certainly some pretty cautionary elements to that tale. Absolutely. Cosmic <laughs> elements as well. Um, tourism is not necessarily a perfect answer, but there can be good things too. Yeah, and I think that's what all of our guests today stressed. I'm going to let Heather have the last word here because she has an interesting perspective on it. I feel comfortable saying that a purely tourism agenda for a small community is not the full answer. That's never going to sustain everybody. It's temporary. You can't depend on it. It's subject to weather and dollars and wars and climate change. You know, you, you just it's, it's, it's risky to put all your eggs in the kind of tourism development basket. Having said that, some really exciting things can come from it. If it's positioned as 
how can we use this as a vehicle to develop our community? If it's really controlled and thought carefully about, it can be a way of celebrating the town. It can it can make everybody feel proud. It's really exciting when someone wants to come and see your town. That's a really good feeling. And I think when it's kept at that level, but it's not given this sort of this mantle of economic savior, then I think it can be a really exciting prospect. And a lot of people can get behind it and volunteers will contribute and it can be a ton of fun. But I just, I think when it's given that economic opportunity mantle, we stop worrying about what the impacts are going to be. And, and in, a, in a small town, it can be, they can be really devastating. And people, people will leave. They'll move away or they'll, they'll pull out from that town during whatever, you know, that event is. And that's, that's I think, is a problem. So who feels like vacation? <laughs> <laughs> so that was a great episode. That was fun. We heard from a whole lot of different people about sure a whole did. lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, first, Jane Severs from Fairyland, Newfoundland and Labrador. Then Karen Larsen from Bornholm Island in Denmark. Mark Stoddard from St. John's. And Heather Mayer from the University of Waterloo. Rural Roots is a partnership between the Harris Centre, the Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation, and the Rural Policy Learnings Commons Partnership. We record the show at the CHMR Campus Radio at Memorial University of Newfoundland here in St. John's. You can hear all of our episodes, um, three seasons now, through our website, ruralrootspodcast.com. That's rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. Or you can find us on your favorite podcasting app. You can also hear us on community and campus radio stations across the country. If you'd like your station to carry Rural Roots, just let them know and they can find us on the Campus and Community Radio Program Exchange or they can get in touch with us directly. I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Boyan First. Thanks for listening. See ya. See ya.